Welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. I am your host, Dr. Julieta Gabiola, clinical professor of medicine at Stanford University. What drew me to medicine was the science, the innovation, and the promise for a comfortable life. But what has kept me in medicine are the real people, their lives, and their stories, as well as the translation of medical innovations into practical applications. This podcast will explore experiences beyond the walls and corridors of the hospital, laboratories, and clinics. I invite you to share in our journey seeking to preserve and improve our lives, our sense of balance, and our well-being. Letter of a daughter to her elderly mom who died of COVID. Dear mom, is it grief, guilt, or regrets? Is it blame, anger, fear, sadness, or insecurity? My emotions are indescribable and just can't seem to process them. I would have given anything to hold or hug you on your final moments. Instead, I was paralyzed, feeling helpless, seeing you gasp for your last breaths through the glass windows of the intensive care. I would have given anything to have been able to whisper how much I loved and appreciated you. Hope you still hear me now, wherever you are. Now... I'm in this empty space where I feel stuck and so alone. Yes, I am angry at the world for not having protected you. I am angry at myself for not having spent lots of time with you. Angry at the nursing homes where there were not enough PPEs. Angry at all the people who were in denial of the pandemic and put people like you and I at risk. Angry at our leaders who put their agenda first over their constituents. Angry directed to a divided nation. How can I survive this and move on? All my life, you were always there for me, provided for me. You protected me from everything, especially when dad left us. How could I rise up now? I don't know how. I am lost. I don't have the strength you had. I wish now that I could rewind the clock to have more time to show you my love and appreciation and to learn from you. I took that time for granted. No one should experience what I just experienced and wish that circumstances were different. COVID had paralyzed all of us. My hope are we will find true meaning of our existence, what we are here for, what is truly important. I am sending you my love through this letter and will keep your memory and imprints in my heart. These words from you will always be with me. Celebrate each day. Give more of yourself to improve mankind. No regrets, just appreciations. Love, D. Early in the pandemic, Nursing homes were among the hardest-hit facilities in the United States. They are still considered as hotspots of viral transmissions. In July, data suggested that 45% of all COVID-related deaths nationwide occurred in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. 
By the end of October, there has been at least 82,000 COVID-19 deaths in nursing homes and long-term facilities throughout the U.S. That's about 33% of all deaths. Nursing homes are considered as tinderboxes for recurrent clusters of infections due to many factors. Number one, elderly are in frail health and have multiple coexisting medical conditions. Number two, high resident to healthcare provider ratio in nursing facilities. Number three, enclosed space. Number four, use of common spaces. Number five, inadequate testing. Number six, inadequate PPE. Number seven, inadequate caretakers. Number eight, need for high frequency of contact. As hospitals get overwhelmed with this new surge, there is a predicted domino effect on the nursing homes. The effect in the elderly are beyond physical. It is the isolation, loneliness, fear, and anxiety, depression, and loss of hope that are more concerning. Community gatherings, frequent visits from loved ones are restricted and put to a halt. Home health care has also been difficult to obtain and got even much more expensive that even basic care like grooming, meals, grocery shopping are not being met. Family members who used to assist their elderly parents now cannot easily get to them for fear of infecting them. As healthcare takers get more exposed and turn positive for COVID, increasing staff shortage is predicted. Challenges in PPE and testing availability are still ongoing, although worse at the start of the pandemic. Eight out of 10 COVID-related deaths reported in the U.S. have been among older adults 65 years and older. The risk of severe illness like hospitalization, need for oxygenation, ICU admission, and artificial ventilation increases with age. So how can we then protect our elderly population? And how can we not exacerbate further isolation and loneliness? Good morning and welcome to Medicine for Good podcast. Today, I am so pleased to welcome Yusra Hossein, a beloved colleague, a geriatrician in the Bay Area affiliated with Stanford and El Camino Hospital. She is an adjunct clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford University. She is the chair for the Physicians for a National Healthcare Program in the South Bay and Silicon Valley. Welcome to the show, Yusra, and thank you for joining me. First, tell me. What is a geriatrician? Well, first of all, I have to say thank you so much, Dr. Gabriola, uh, Julieta, for inviting me. You are a wonderful friend and colleague, and I so appreciate all your hard efforts and great work that you do here and abroad. I have to give a recognition to your ABC for Global Health nonprofit that you, you do such a great work at. And so, you know, uh, kudos to that. A geriatrician. A geriatrician is a physician who specializes in the care of elderly people. So in the United States, it's roughly around the age of 65 and older, and they can be from an internal medicine or a family practice background. It's an additional certification that doctors and actually have been open to nurse practitioners also to go into that field uh, lately. So 
Yeah, that's an expanding uh, specialty in medicine with our aging population, correct? So your role will be really a, a crucial importance on, on this subject. So anyway, what are the services that geriatricians offer and how right. that changed now with COVID-19? Thank you for that question. So most geriatricians operate in multiple settings. And actually, that's one of the appeal of geriatric medicine is that there is uh, never a boring day. Most geriatricians work in clinic settings as well as uh, skilled nursing facilities, caring for elderly patients. Um, and uh, for most parts, also, there is a consult service in hospitals, you know, that provide care for elderly patients. In reality, um, with the COVID-19, I feel a lot of geriatricians have been put in the position of finding themselves not only caring for the elderly, but also becoming the advocates for the caregivers, for the uh, skilled nursing facilities that they work at, as well as they become more politically you know, involved because of the need to be active, essentially, and try to advocate for your patients. And I'm just going to give a background here. You know, most people hear the word long-term care facilities. To give it a broad definition, these entities are essentially homes for uh, people who are 65 and older. Uh, but in reality, people can actually get in there in these places at age 55 and older. And they range anywhere from being independent senior livings all the way to skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes. And this uh, difference between skilled nursing and nursing homes in the sense that Skilled nursing facilities can also take younger patients. It doesn't have to be elderly patients. So anyone who has a motor vehicle accident, say, you know, or a surgery that requires some level of rehabilitation afterward would be admitted to a skilled nursing. And about 11 to 15 percent of the population in skilled nursing actually can be people who are uh, young adults, younger than 65. With that, you know, generally speaking, there is about 1.4 to 1.5 million Americans currently living in nursing homes. About two-thirds of them are uh, female and around 77% white. However, the demographics change based on the region uh, that people are in. There is roughly about uh, 1 million certified assisted living facility beds. That's aside from nursing homes. And on average, they range anywhere from 33 bed facilities to 100 to 270 bed facilities. So they, they, the size of these facilities also differ widely. With the pandemic, unfortunately, about eight out of every 10 COVID-related deaths has happened in elderly patients, whether they are at home or one of these long-term care facilities. So you can see that COVID hit the elderly the hardest. As we have seen with the pandemic as it was unfolding, in some instances, actually about 47% of all COVID cases were in skilled nursing facilities. Recent statistics showed close to about 37,000 people in skilled nursing facilities have been affected, whether they are patients or their care providers. And I would love to touch about on the piece of the care providers later in the interview, because I think that's a real area or population that has been hit hard, but unfortunately also neglected, you know, from the provision of care, as well as from attention, essentially from the media. I really appreciate you talking about the statistics in the elderly. That's really astounding. 47% elderly in the nursing facilities are affected by COVID. And so how do you think like our local leaders are mobilizing resources for the elderly? 
So unfortunately, I would say in the beginning of the pandemic, the resources were primarily allotted to hospitals and acute care facilities, and very little attention was paid to the skilled nursing facilities. And when I talk about resources, uh, it's anywhere from provision of protective personal equipment, uh, like face masks, gowns, hand sanitizers, gloves. I mean, these were very hot items in the beginning of the pandemics and were really not available. Most of these resources were shifted to to the hospitals and acute care. In addition to resources, in addition to these physical resources, there are also training, you know, training staff on proper donning and don, you know, off of the equipment, like the gowns and how to properly care for elderly patients, you know, in these settings or for any patients really for that matter in these settings, what to do in case there is a case of a COVID-19 positive patient. So, what happened, unfortunately, is that, you know, cases started happening, incidents started happening with COVID-19 patients in skilled nursing and nursing homes and assisted livings with very little time that there was the complete spread of this virus in the facility. Like I said, in some instances, maybe about 50% of the patients in that facility got affected. When we talk about people getting affected, it's not only patients, also their caregivers. And so often uh, what happened also early on, and still unfortunately really to be honest with you, the case is that the workers in these skilled nursing and skilled and nursing homes and assisted living, most of them are low wage workers. Some of them are also little education. Some may not even speak perfect English. And these workers work in multiple settings to make any needs. So they work in two or three of these facilities and Essentially, we're also becoming the source of spreading of this virus from one place to the other. What we've noticed, at least, you know, from the clinical standpoint is that, you know, again, patients were forced out of the hospitals and into nursing homes. That was another dynamic that was happening. Hospitals trying to get to empty their beds and getting their patients into skilled nursing and skilled nursings were asked to take these patients not being fully equipped, you know, to take care of, of their own patients to begin with. So that really created a great tension and also anxiety, plus the fact that, you know, these people uh, were coming in, you know, with positive virus, potentially being also another source of threat of the infection in these facilities. So, I mean, I have to say here, honestly, it's, you know, a lot of blame being put on the skull nursing facilities and, you know, these care homes. But in reality, they were just not the resources were just not available for them. You know, they really had to scramble. Early on, a group of my colleagues and myself, geriatricians in the Bay Area, we started what we called it Operation PPE. It's really trying to secure uh, protect, personal protective equipment for some of these skilled nursing and care home. And there are also home care agencies that provide actually care at home to elderly patients that were completely out of uh, protective equipment. These caregivers would go into a person's home trying to provide care for an elderly patient, not having proper gear um, to protect their, themselves, you know, and then eventually these caregivers will go to their own families and take the virus with them if they ever get exposed. So there was a real crisis happening. And uh, one of the goals we were trying to do is to try and secure uh, personal protective equipment. So we, at one point, we managed actually to raise about 10,000 of face masks and close to about... 6,000 of gowns, and we helped close to about 25 agencies, you know, from anywhere from like large skilled nursing to like, you know, home health that care that has maybe about six or seven people employee. The crisis was there. I feel the nice thing is we saw the community stepped up to try and meet some of the needs. The government eventually followed through, you know, to some degree and started shifting the resources. But I would say that happened only about three or four weeks into the crisis. So, 
yeah, <laughs> it was chaotic at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. So really, it takes a lot of activism and advocacy to make changes such as this, especially during this crisis. Thank you for highlighting that. I remember the statistics like from New York and New Jersey earlier on, where a lot of the caregivers are the ones infected. Could you give us a glimpse on that? Absolutely. So unfortunately, what happened in some of these places is that at one point, you know, as I said earlier, a lot of these caregivers and workers are low paid, low wage workers, you know, so they work multiple jobs to try, you know, and meet their needs. And in reality, these people also were some of them actually in in one interview, there was a, a person who said she had to use her face mask for almost three weeks trying to you know, because that was the only face mask she was given and trying to care for multiple people with COVID-19, trying to bathe them. She was a CNA. A CNA is a certified nurse assistant. Um, so she's bathing them. She's dressing them. These are people who are actually actively positive and very having to use the same mask, you know, for an extended period of time. Let's just give one example. These caregivers are living generally, specifically, we talk about New York and New Jersey. Uh, a lot of them were living in crowded situations. So they have multiple families actually in the same household. So very difficult to do the social distancing that we all talk about, you know, the six feet, wearing the face mask, you know, being in a place where you're not necessarily coming in contact with another person. So they have to go home to these kinds of settings. And then on top of it, you know, they, they work in multiple places. So that really contributed, unfortunately, to the pandemic, to the spread of the virus, so to speak. And some of these communities were hit so hard that actually, I would say in New York City, there was an area where about close to 40% of the people in that region were infected with the virus. To me, this is basically highlights um, the fact that there was very little preparedness on the side of the city, the side of the planet, so basically, or, or, you know, the healthcare system, honestly, at large, to safeguard these individuals against the virus. There were instances in New Jersey, actually, where people were offered in one specific facility, specifically, uh, people were offered, I mean, I'm talking about the caregivers, were offered to stay in the skilled nursing and were offered a room there so that they can continue to provide care and also prevent families from getting the virus. And that was a positive example of how the skilled nursing facility administrators essentially stepped up and, uh, you know, tried to protect the caregivers as well as their families from the spread of the infection. And some of these caregivers took that offer, you know, and we're glad to have that option. That is interesting in terms of protecting their own families and themselves and also protecting the facility and the people in the facility for their spread. That's really nice to see like wonderful solutions to a problem such as that. Any more mitigating strategies that you could think of that will be practical solution to this problem in the elderly? Absolutely. So, I mean, I, the way I look at it at this point is that we've given the opportunity now to have about nine months worth of data about the virus, the spread of the virus, how we can protect ourselves and our loved ones and our elderly. The key thing I would say at this point is having the first of all, know where your, you know, the hot spots are, you know, where, where the problems are and then or problem areas are and try to target these specific areas by providing a education, B resources, you know, so we definitely need to have these people ready by having protective gear, you know, even adequate uh, 
housing if needed uh, so that they are not necessarily taking the virus onto their own families, uh, provide them with some more local places to stay at. If the pandemic picks up again, specifically we're talking about winter time coming through, that then these individuals can basically stay safely and protect themselves and their caregivers. Protection, there is nothing more important than protection, you know, than prophylaxis, you know. So wearing the face mask, having clean face masks, clean gowns are essential to the health and well-being of these individuals. Hand hygiene. I mean, there are very simple interventions that can be put in place to keep people healthy. You know, in one place I actually work at, I know the owner, he asked his workers whenever they walk, come to work, there is a specific designated area where they actually, if they have not had a shower, they can even take a shower there. And they bring in their a new set of clothes and they change into those clothes and then they walk into the building. When they go home, they do the same thing. They change out of the clothes that they were wearing and they go back home to their own families. You know, so that's simple intervention, you know, providing adequate space for them to like, you know, have change, dress in clean clothes, come into the building. So even if they were working somewhere else, if they've changed their clothes and walk into the building, you know, they are coming in with the clean clothes, wearing a face mask, washing their hands. I mean, these are, again, simple yet very effective interventions at preventing the spread of the virus. People getting together in a smart way I mean, I'm really against the fact that we're shutting the elderly community from their families. I feel part of their well-being is to be able to spend time with their loved ones. So providing safe space, let that be with a, say, like a curtain, you know, a plastic curtain where they can sit on each side of the, you know, room, but they can see each other. You know, uh, some people have improvised where they have a full body gown and they can hug each other without necessarily touching each other. There are some really creative and smart ways of like allowing people to be in the same physical space without necessarily breathing the same air. So in places where people can sit outside, we know that a fresh air is a great way of like also preventing the spread of the virus, provided that they, everyone is wearing a face mask. So simple solutions, face mask, hand hygiene, clean clothes, making sure, you know, maintaining a safe distance, all these are really essential to the well-being of everybody. That is so cool that you outline like simple solutions to this. But what do you think about availability and accessibility of testing for the elderly? Uh, Is that available in the care facility? And two, contact tracing. Like if someone gets infected, how do you do the contact tracing and this assisted living? I love the education guidance and prevention. I love the distancing in a specific space and how is that responsible and protected. I really like that. Tell me about the accessibility of testing in the uh, care facility. Yeah, so many of them have, well, at least I should say about the ones that I involved with. I can't speak for every single facility. But in general, the test for COVID-19 has become more available and many universities actually provided um, in our area, Stanford, and is definitely providing a turnaround time of less than 24 hours, actually, even though they say 24 hours. So that's one place I know other buildings things, send their labs to Quest or other entities where the turnaround time can be a bit longer. Some, In some instances, I know the turnaround time can be up to a week, which is really not ideal. You know, you want a test that we, you give you the results within, honestly, like instantaneous, because that's the, really the only way you can prevent the spread of the virus, you know, if you know a person has it or not. So in general, 
there are tests out there, and I know quite a few of the facilities have invested in acquiring the test machines, but they are expensive. So I would say large facilities can afford it, not smaller facilities. So with that, basically, I'd say the average turnaround time right now for a test is about three days. Once there is a positive case, they try and track down that person's that person's contact. So many places do have that in place where they actually do contact tracing. It is required currently by, you know, the CDC. So we, it's um, it's something that everybody should be doing really in reality, where they uh, essentially identify who that person was in contact with, potentially where they have been, and who potentially may have given it to them in the first place. So contract tracing is absolutely essential. So we'll continue to improve, hopefully, as the test speed and accuracy continue to improve. So it is a matter of, like, you know, hopefully time that we start seeing that happen. I guess ask what to do about it once a person is identified. I mean, in general, these people are advised not to come to work for about two weeks until they are, I mean, especially, well, so yeah, once a person is positive, actually, they are out for two weeks, you know, in most of these places. But how about the residents of the facilities? Are there contact tracing there? And it's also, are the tests available to them or would they have to be transported to a drive-through? No, so for most parts, the tests are becoming available for the residents. And so they are tested right there. And if they are being positive, many buildings have set what we call it like a quarantine area, actually with the help of the counties in our area, Santa Clara and San Mateo counties have been active about that. Helping units set up essentially or helping facilities set up units specifically for COVID patients. So if a person is tested positive, there is uh, in, in at least again, I'll go back to the buildings I work at. There are a three staging units. So there is the general population of patients who we know they are COVID negative. If there is the short term admission area where people are under observation. And these are people who are coming from a higher level of care, say from the hospital to the skilled nursing, and they are kept in that area for two weeks. And then there is the positive cases. So that's a high area where once a person is identified as positive, uh, they are admitted to that high area uh, security or, you know, COVID unit, we call it where basically they are assigned a nurse. So there is one nurse who actually doesn't provide, like, you know, or the resources will be increased based on need. But thankfully, we haven't really had to have more than that. One nurse is assigned to that patient, providing all sorts of care, including therapy, because these people come generally to the facility, you know, needing physical therapy, occupational therapy, basic self-care. So the nurse will provide that support. And then there is a separate exit out of that building, you know, so that that person is not exiting from the same place where other staff coming in uh, to try and minimize contact in those instances. If people are stable, they can stay in the skull nursing facility and they, until they are symptom-free. But if they are unstable, obviously they get transferred to a higher level of care at this point, the hospital. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So that's interesting that uh, the levels of care, et cetera, and the resources that you have in this mm -hmm. nursing facility. Now I'd like to kind of digress from the assisted living and the elderly population. I know that you are working on a project as the chair for the Physicians for a National Healthcare Program in the South Bay and Silicon Valley. Tell me about that initiative and for a lot of us who don't know much about the initiative. 
Sure. So my interest really started with my initially with my political advocacy, trying to uh, bring about, you know, a national health care program. And COVID-19 just really highlighted the inadequacy in our healthcare system. I mean, there is unfortunately this pandemic really shed the light on all the holes in our system. A lot of For example, the caregivers who do provide care for elderly don't have insurance. You know, uh, some of them, because they work in multiple jobs, they may not be putting the hours needed to qualify to get an insurance from one entity. And um, these people were really hit hard by COVID-19. Now, generally, you know, there has been a provision where people actually can get pre-screening for COVID-19. But if they are positive and they have no insurance, they are on their own. You know, there is nothing right now to cover them. So again, that just highlighted, you know, the inefficiency, the inadequacy um, in our healthcare. So with the COVID-19, I felt, you know, I have a responsibility as a physician to really speak out and this inequity in our healthcare system and lack of distribution of resources in an equitable fashion. I sought in um, the Physicians for National Healthcare program source of not just resources, but also support and a platform for advocacy, trying to raise awareness about the inequality in, of health, in healthcare and lack of distribution of resources uh, in a proper manner. I believe as a nation that we spend twice per capita on our healthcare, and yet our mortality rate is ranks the eight behind you know, an, an industrialized nation is really shameful. We have the capacity to provide care for everybody in an equitable fashion. You know, hospitals, unfortunately, have been closed down uh, with COVID-19 because what's interesting also is most hospitals are for profit. And with COVID-19, with the lack of elective surgeries and elective hospitalization, so to speak, a lot of hospitals don't have the income to support them. So we saw some hospitals really literally closed down their doors, even though the community still needs them. So the reality is we need to strip away uh, the concept of for-profit from the healthcare system. Healthcare, in my opinion, is a human right. People actually need to have access to a decent healthcare, no matter you know what socioeconomic class they are. And ultimately, these people care for our elderly. So, I mean, I my message to people who actually are against universal health care is that think of the people who are providing care for your mom and dad. Would you want them to come to your home or to your parents' home, not have had their vaccines, not have been checked up recently, not have had adequate health care because they just can't afford it? I would look anybody in the eye and I say, if this is really acceptable to you, I have really a serious concern about, you know, your humanity. So to me, um, it's a question of how do we treat each other, you know, as human beings and as fellow citizens and even uh, residents, you know, in this matter is, you know, there are, they may not be citizens, but they still provide an essential service in our community. These people deserve access to healthcare. So this is why I felt the need to be involved politically and um, socially to raise awareness about the the need for universal health care, that that be Medicare for all or any form of essential single payer system that would provide um, access to health care for all individuals, you know, in an equitable way. Thank you for sharing that advocacy, Yusra. I share and echo that advocacy. Caregiving is so close to my heart. I used to be a nurse and I used to be one of the caregivers. 
well, as caregivers, we are also caregivers in medicine, correct? But not as intense and close as like the nursing assistants, the caregivers at home. And my two sisters who are 83 and 84 years old are still caregivers. And I, I can't stop them from doing that because they love doing it. A lot of Filipino nurses and Filipino healthcare workers are caregivers. So I know the statistics is out there in terms of like, who are these caregivers? And we absolutely need to protect them, to give them resources, give them insurance, etc. Whatever we could do to advocate for this system will advocate for our patients. So thank you for highlighting that. Oh boy, this is really huge. I really appreciate your sharing your advocacy, sharing what you do as a geriatrician. Any last minute word for our listeners? Absolutely. So my um, message to all the listeners today is please go out and vote because we really need to change the legislations that will bring about um, justice and equity in our community. We cannot afford the status quo, basically. So, Yay. Hopefully we restore respect back to medicine and science, right? So, Yusra, thank you so much for joining me. It was really indeed a pleasure to have you. Likewise, really. Thanks very much, Julieta, for having me. This has been an honor and really a pleasure talking to you as well. And wish you best of luck and success. on your uh, Thank you. Thank you so much. You. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to Medicine for Good podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share with family and friends. Rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Acast, and YouTube. Follow me on social media at Dr. Jet on Twitter and Facebook. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. See you on our next episode.